0: Hi, it's Paul Camilos. Welcome to series five of Shooting the Breeze. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin as we talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. This marks the start of our fourth year of covering women's hoops and women in hoops. And throughout the series, we welcome experts like Lyndon Moore from New Zealand and other special guests from across the world to get a global picture of the game. During this series, We'll take a closer look at the grassroots and the passionate people at the community level. And of course, the 30th edition of the FIBA Women's Asia Cup will be heading to our shores for the first time to showcase the best women's hoops in our region. Hit that subscribe button and to show your support, rate and leave us a review on iTunes so we reach more listeners.
1: coaching's hard and you're dealing with you know you're trying to keep everybody on the same page but I think just having those experiences in Australia and with different teams just helps you as a communicator as well and I you know I was a police officer for many years too so communication's part of that and I think just leading people is also kind of key in in a coaching role.
0: In this episode, we're so grateful to be joined by an Aussie who's doing great things offshore in this Passport pod. Coach Tracy York, the head coach of the Malaysian Women's National Basketball Team, who won bronze at the recent Southeast Asia Games and doing it during the middle of an off-the-scale heatwave in Cambodia. A veteran coach, she's uniquely cut her teeth coaching both men's and women's basketball, including as an assistant coach with the Adelaide 36ers for nearly five years. Tracy's also had a long history of coaching our women's youth national teams, including the Sapphires in last year's Asia Cup gold medal performance, as well as that historic gold medal in 2016, alongside head coach Shannon Seabone. We're so grateful for Coach Tracy patiently walking through a few internet issues during this recording that led to some hilarious outtakes that we'll save for a later feature. Coach Tracy fills us in on her coaching journey, the state of play in Southeast Asia, and some real insights into women's hoops. Enjoy. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me as always, my co-host Jacinta Govind. And today we're being joined from Malaysia by Tracy York, who's just come off a bronze medal performance at the Southeast Asian Games with Malaysia. Tracy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here.
1: Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jacinta.
0: So let's talk about Malaysia because um, and I know we're gonna jump around a little bit, but Malaysia is a country we don't normally associate with basketball in the Southeast Asian region, as much as say the Philippines or some of the other countries with a higher profile. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: I haven't done that before on a a...
0: well. That's okay. We've had in the past we've had interruptions from barking dogs. We were talking a few years ago with Cheryl at the World Cup at Tenerife and housekeeping walked into the hotel room. (laughs) So it's okay. It's all right. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So Malaysia is not a country that we normally associate with basketball as much as other countries in the Southeast Asian region. Tell us about basketball in Malaysia.
1: Yeah, well, that's right. Um, back in 2005, I took up the role as technical director for the Basketball Association of Singapore. So I actually spent three years working um, in basketball in Singapore, and then the Singapore Slingers started there, and my husband was team manager and assistant coach with them with Gordie McLeod. So uh, we came back to Adelaide in 08, but I've kept kind of, you know all your contacts that you know through through basketball over the years, and Malaysia reached out last July and said they're looking for a coach, full-time coach, to run a you know new uh, program with their women's team, and you know was I interested? So originally I had no plans to leave Adelaide or uh, move on or anything like that, but um, this came up, and my daughter goes, "Well, you have to take it," and I'm like, "Well, why is that?" She said, "Oh, you'd be too bored if you stay at home. You'd just..." couldn't do it and I said oh we could hang out have coffee stuff like that she has no mum you need to do it (laughs) so um yeah I came over for the interview in August and started full-time in early September.
2: Do you perhaps know why the sudden interest in basketball and especially women's basketball in Malaysia given that there was a great coaching opportunity presented to you is there more funding in the sport or more interest in general? Yeah, so basically,
1: probably like a lot of associations, it had a new committee come in and a new president who was very passionate about basketball and he's very generous and um, he's put in a lot of funding to the sport. And uh, so they looked at what they needed and they wanted to get a coach in. They wanted to get a full-time program for the on the female side and because there's not a lot of local competition for them and um yeah and so we kind of just went from there and started I basically you know have run what I would run in a WNBL program here uh so it was kind of quite new to them all and you know it was a lot of getting used to like we're training and we're doing this many sessions a week but you know ultimately what the lead up was or what we were preparing for was a sea game and and it all came – kind of all came into the process or came to um, be there and, you know, had a great result.
0: So just talking about, you know, the program and, and the interest, how much interest is there in Malaysia in basketball generally?
1: Oh, well, there's actually a fair bit. Like they run – a lot of the leagues are run for the men and they are now trying to do some more leagues for the women. Like when I got here, I think it was the um, – Westport, the Dragons, KL Dragons, Jamie Perlman from the Thirty Sixes—he was a coach here at one stage with them. Um, I think it's definitely growing in stature. We know the Philippines—if a Philippine team comes to play you in the Philippines—they're mad basketball people. But we're definitely—it's definitely getting more popular, and we get a lot of people to the stadium here at Marba. So they run a lot of tournaments, and sometimes that can be just quite full—people just coming to watch.
2: And uh, given 3x3, certainly on the rise as well in popularity, and it's certainly more uh, quite popular in Asia with a higher population density and probably less resources and places to play. So, 3x3 is quite suitable. Is it as popular in Malaysia as it's made out to be in Australia?
1: Uh, no, it's getting there. So, they they've actually now going to join the European tour, um, which will be over the next couple of months. And I mean, look, just probably size wise, population, certainly in the women, they're not a big race and we, you know, got a lot of guard types, but um, they've definitely started up a three on three program. And, the, and they understand they've got to go play these tournaments to get experience, to find out where they are, to, you know, look at a lot of things. And the same with the five on five program. My recommendation is we need to go out and play a lot more tournaments. Um, so, yeah, three on threes definitely, they're doing that with the men and the women's side too.
0: It's really interesting the way three-on-three is taking off across Southeast Asia and the way it's also building interest in the five-on-five game. How do you see this cross-promotion helping to develop the game in countries where basketball may not be as popular as some other sports?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think the three-on-three game, um, because it's – You know, it's quick, it's a ten minute game, you know, they're doing it at, you know, shopping centres or they're doing it at places where people are there and I think that exposes the game of basketball. A lot of people say to me it's such a different game, three on three and five on five, but I kind of say yes and no, you know, whilst a lot of countries try to keep three on three players separate to the five on five, but countries like ourselves and a lot of smaller countries you're using the same players because you have to. You don't have the And even in, you look at um, Australia's three-on-three team, Unley, Maley, Marina Whittle, Lauren Mansfield and Alex Wilson, who I had at Vendigo Spirit, Uh, I mean, those players are absolute guns in 5-on-5. And they can play three on three, so I, I I don't see it has to be so distinct. If you've got enough players, and obviously if it clashes with, you know, say Australian team and Opals, you, you'd separate it. But um, yeah, and so the smaller countries, I think they're kind of they do look at the bigger models and say we need to separate. And I kind of say, well, you just don't have the the pool of players, so it's okay to. So in our last part of our preparation, last couple of months here, we incorporated the three on three.
0: So. Bronze at the SEA games, first time in for Malaysia. That's obviously a pretty spectacular result. And also, I I believe you did it in one of the worst heat waves in Asian history.
1: It was hot. Before we left KL, people are saying it's really hot in Cambodia. I'm like, are you guys for real? It's really hot in KL, right? And we got there. Holy hell. It just felt like well, there was hardly any shade, but it was Hot, just hot, and because um, I thought they were exaggerating something in well, it's hot in Lumpur, so I don't know what they were talking about, similar, but it was like uh, you walk back from the stadium, which might be 150 metres down the road, but there wasn't any shade. It was just sun and you were just like, I need to go shower. Um, the, the court was not air conditioned, so just had fans. Oh, my oh. Lord. Our first game was overtime. One of the players came over and she started to use my shirt to wipe her hands and I'm like, (laughs) get me a towel, get me a towel. So it was, yeah, it was, and even uh, the change room, if you call it that, um, uh, yeah, they had to bring fans in and they were pretty warm too. But, yeah, it was very warm.
2: (laughs) And people, like you've got to also account for the humidity of those countries as well. So it was lot temperature, hot, and I imagine the humidity would have been high as well.
1: Yeah, it was just, um, yeah, it was, it was. I thought kind of they were exaggerating, but when I got there, I went, oh, my, yeah, it was, yeah, extremely warm everywhere. Um, so that kind of only, you know, in your room and hoping that your air, condition, air conditioning didn't break down was the coolest part.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and when it comes to, like, training and playing in under those really extreme conditions, does it change the way you plan a training session or does it change the way um, you coach your game and, and deciding what to implement?
1: Well, it was interesting because a lot of our well, games were in the, our first game was in the afternoon, like 3 o'clock, and the others were in the morning. But there was uh, an outdoor training court if you wanted. So we'd kind of planned that maybe we weren't going to get, I guess, what I'm normally used to with uh, training courts and time. So we did a lot of our scouting uh, as much as we could before we left paper scouts, video scouts, and we also did walkthroughs when we are in Malaysia because we didn't know what we would or wouldn't get when we were there. So we did a lot of that before and then we did a lot of video work. So we actually didn't really get to train and I didn't use the outdoor court because that wouldn't do that.
2: Yeah, you don't want to put your athletes at risk of any injury, heat stroke. Nothing <laughs> when you're going into it's tournament
1: mode. Three layups and they'd, look, they'd be looking at like, "Are you for real?" So can- <laughs>
0: <laughs> how big a surprise was? Well, I mean, obviously, you, when you go into any tournament, you're going in there with an expectation that you're going to win, right? I mean, it's it's part of the nature of competitive play. How did you guys feel when you got in there and got that bronze medal?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So in terms of the Southeast Asia Games, they don't operate under FIBA rules. So the host can um, say what rules they like. So you can get naturalised players. Now, some countries have naturalised players because their country can have dual passport. uh, And you can also have what's heritage players. So they might have been born in America, but they've got heritage to their country. We had neither naturalised or heritage players and Cambodia then went with an open passport just show passport so Cambodia had six Americans for their males and females that wow. that came in and uh, so it was always going to be very very tough cuz then Indonesia when you had Kimberly and I'm going to Pereira she's a Canadian American and she played the last sea games But because it was show passport, they had another one from their three-on-three. So they had two big imports in their team. So, And Philippines are saying they've got a lot of kind of American-born and been in college and things like that. So it was always going to be very, very tough. And we came up against the Cambodia team, which was the home side, but um, with six Americans in it on the first game. Ooh. And we, yeah, we it was pretty. even well, It was an even first quarter. Then we got down by as much as nineteen, and then we got back to fourteen at time And then we actually even the score three quarter time, scored um, with us two seconds to go at the end of regulation, and then we won overtime. So that was just massive, a massive win for us against some very good experienced players from America. So that that started our campaign, but it was very very good because it could have looked quite different.
2: Wow, so I'm guessing with six Americans for the host nation on both men and women's team, A reads to me, uh, someone's done a hell of a job recruiting around the world <laughs> for this tournament, but also I'm guessing there weren't any restrictions on naturalised players or heritage players and such, you know, similarly when, you know, you're picking an Opals team and you can only have one naturalised player Yeah. Um, under FIBA rules, of course, but I'm guessing this, this sounds like a free-for-all. Well...
1: Yeah, you know, our recommendations and the same with our, um, they, they're having a meeting next month. I said, in my opinion, you've got to go under FIBA rules. Otherwise, to keep trying to get any sort of medal is just going to be massively hard, especially when, say, Malaysia and Singapore, you can't have dual citizenship and there's not going to be too many people and it's not easy to give up your whole passport and get a whole new one. So, there's a, you know, it's a can of worms but it's also very difficult to, so out of the seven teams that competed and we came third, um, only Singapore and us, I believe, were the only teams with local players in it. So for us to beat Cambodia, to beat um, Vietnam, to beat Thailand was massive. I mean, just, it's not going to be an even playing field. And, and then you look kind of on the men's side, and our men were in the pool of Cambodia and Philippines men. Well, those two played in the final. So the best our team could play off for in the men was fifth. It's just, uh, yeah, and in the women, like I think, you know, as I said, we did really well. Like uh, other teams had what they call the heritage players, but in Australia we'd call that that's an import or a player under the FIBA rule. So um, it's just going to get harder and harder, to, I believe, to win medals if they continue with those sort of rules and, and a host being able to decide those rules. Then you can just bring in who. And, and Indonesia, I think, I read, and they had a really great team, but I think they've been in since 1977. That's the first time they've won gold. But their two import players, arguably, they were fantastic and they were easily 40 points a night between the two of them as bigs easily. So we just couldn't combat that. And they, would, they were super. The rest of the team was good too and they were well coached, but uh, it does make a huge difference. And these imports were like, fringe WNBA, WNBL, EuroLeague standard.
0: So let me ask you something about that. We talk about FIBA rules and for Asia to be able to, to compete more regularly in international competition, do you think having FIBA rules pretty much across the board is going to help because then everybody understands this is what you've got to do at international international competition level?
1: I think definitely, obviously, you know, coming through our Australian system and just being involved internationally for the last 10 or 12 years is to me you have to because otherwise how are you developing your local talent, how are you developing your, um, you know, identification of that talent and how you're doing things, it's a quick fix to if you can, you go out and buy a couple of players. It's just it doesn't help the rest of the your team or how you, how you do it but understandably there's you know, uh, some thought process is it's just about winning. So that becomes problematic in different events.
0: Coach Tracy York was a real trooper while recording this passport pod. With more than a few internet dropouts interrupting our recording, Jacinta and I would chat while waiting for her to reconnect. We didn't know she could hear us at some point, and we started talking about durian, an exotic Southeast Asian fruit. One day we might release the outtakes, but we had to include the durian discussion before we got back into our podcast. Okay. Now, before we kind of jump off to another topic, we were just a second ago talking about everyone's favorite fruit, (laughs) the durian. (laughs) So, given your time over there, how have you adopted to the durian?
1: Oh, well, I'd say I haven't. No. <laughs> it's not on the menu. It's a walk past it. Like when I was in Singapore, it was actually illegal to eat it. Really? Um, but in KL, you can, you can get it. And uh, it's called Eat Street near me. But yeah, no, not even. <laughs> um, they're not even trying the ice cream. There's lots of other things. Beautiful local foods here. I'll, and I'm not really a spicy eat either. Not that I'm saying durian spicy, but. Um, pretty kind of basic. People go, What do you like? I like, Oh, I like the Chinese chicken rice. That's
2: nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a classic. You can't go past Hainese chicken rice. That is no, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> especially when it's so humid and you finally found like a spot just to sit and chill, whether there's a fan or not. That is just so weirdly refreshing for like a meal.
0: Yeah, A yes, Rice
2: great. and protein based <laughs> meal are oh, so delicious. I kind of crave it now that you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Send you a photo later oh, on. Please, <laughs> please do. I might have
0: to try and replicate it. The wit just talking about that high knees chicken and rice. Last time I was in Singapore, I was walking past somewhere around Clark Quay oh, and they had they had it up from the local KFC you could get it.
2: Oh. High knees chicken at KFC.
0: Yeah, in Singapore. And I just thought that's that's not right. Hmm. Okay, so Tracy, one of the things that you've got is a lot of experience with both men's and women's basketball at elite level. Obviously, you know, you're assistant coach at the Adelaide 36ers. You were the head coach of the Lightning. How do you feel that that experience has helped you not only here coaching here in Australia but also internationally?
1: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the journey's been quite, I guess, different and, yeah, I've always... For whatever reason, just coach men and women, um, and obviously being with the sixes for quite a few years, and then being a WNBL coach, I just think probably just experience in those programs, experience dealing with people, communication, people issues, whatever. I think that just helps you in your. I guess you know, the older they get, the more experienced you are. I'm not saying there's you know a- anything that's ever not difficult about coaching's hard and you're dealing with you know you're trying to keep everybody on the same page but i think just having those experiences in australia and with different teams just helps you as a communicator as well and i you know i was a police officer for many years too so communication's part of that and i think just leading people is also kind of key in in a coaching role
2: wow so being a police officer did you ever have to use uh, transfer some skills from that role other than communication skills into a coaching role?
1: I <laughs> uh, definitely had to use the communication skills. I it, kind of in the early days, if I maybe did player meetings, I'd lead with what I thought. And I remember having a player meeting with an NBL one male player many years ago, and I kind of led with what I thought wasn't going well, and kind of surprised me where he thought he was doing great, and I kind of went oh. I uh, was the conversation wasn't going to go well so now I kind of use some of the skills I've learned is you know with, with questioning so to speak you kind of get the information from them first and then you know you evaluate it from there rather than kind of swing in with what you've got before you understand what the other person's thinking so that's kind of helped me across time is um, and also you know like a lot of people have a lot of different thoughts that you sometimes there's miscommunication too and By actually having that conversation, you can clear a lot
0: of that up. So do you think that those experiences that you've had, coaching males, females, working as a police officer, you get different perspectives on how to approach? Do you find that when you're kind of having those tough conversations, sometimes you start off with one approach, then maybe you've got to jump tracks to a different approach to try and get your point across?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, you got to kind of, not that you always have plan A, B, C and D, but yeah, you've got to kind of manoeuvre. And I guess sometimes just like people and like, you know, myself is I'll have my thought process and I'm probably a little bit better at it now to not keep saying that way, but to try to get back to it somehow. Uh, yeah, I think it's definitely, you know, it's it's part of the challenge of one, of them understanding you but also to understand their thought process but still to try to manoeuvre the conversation back to what the actual, I guess, either issue or or what you want to address is.
2: And what about in terms of uh, X's and O's? Uh, this is something we probably ask, uh, our, especially our guests that are coaches who have coached both male and female or involved in both male and female basketball in some way, because there's always a constant debate that the games are totally different, the games are the same what's your perspective in terms of x's and those the similarities and differences
1: yeah it's interesting, and I do get asked that a bit I mean I think basketball's basketball, and I as a coach i'm not a different coach if i'm coaching women or coaching men i'm just I'm just the same I think, but I think uh, the women play I guess the purer form of the game and probably execute the x's and o's and want to finish you know what you've run and the the male side my experience is they break out of it a lot earlier They got a you know different skill set you know everyone says about playing above the rim so they'll break out of things a lot more where sometimes I want the females to show their their skill set but they're not as confident so for me if you said coaching males and females it's to me it's confidence males have a lot more or perceived to be a lot more than the females. That's just my experience. With running X's and O's, I've, uh, at one stage I think I was doing 36s men, WNBL women, Australian under-17s, under-14 girls. I was doing my daughter's team and I think the school team. I ran similar plays with them all. So they can work at male level, they can work at under 14 level, you know, how you run it and, and whether they execute. But, you know, I think it's very similar. It's just if people haven't had that experience across both genders they might think it's different but basketball's basketballs just about how they I guess finish things or you know everyone loves watching the men dunk and but women can't dunk so that's just you know we, we don't uh, as a rule but but we do so many other great things and, and can play a great game of basketball too. Mm.
2: And the confidence thing's really interesting because we've also uh, touched on the fear of failure that often plagues uh, female basketball especially when you're coaching juniors and you're trying to encourage junior female athletes to break out of the mold a little bit push themselves a little bit more there's that fear of failure that always holds them back so it's really interesting you brought up the main difference between the men and women you've coached is that confidence in their abilities
1: yeah, it's crazy. It's just so much. And I remember when my daughter was coming through, I go, well, why don't you, you know, I know you can do whatever. Why aren't you doing it? She would oh, because people will look at me and think I'm showing off. And I'm like, well, you're not. But we'd, we'd go to, um, you know, like uh, long weekend tournaments and, you know, games, whatever, and we'd get there early to watch her and say there'd be a boys team playing or warming up. And I'd just say to my husband, just check out the boys warming up compared to the girls warming up, boys are putting it behind their back and throwing it here and doing all this stuff and the girls are just doing a straight lay-up. If you just go watch them, you watch them in the classroom, in the kindergarten, I found it was night and day, but I don't know how, I don't think we can change it, but I'd like to the females to be more confident. It's Susie Bakovich was probably the most confident. She'd just say, give me the ball, give me the ball and I'll do it. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but you're missing your shots at the moment. Can you pass it? No, no, it just give me the ball. <laughs> she was very confident. and was a great player, but there wasn't a whole lot like her with that type of confidence. I didn't find.
2: Well, I mean, it paid off. She's got the MVP trophy named after her now, right? <laughs>
1: well, that's right. I mean, she was just like, yeah, I can do it. Just yeah, she didn't care if she missed the last five shots. A lot of females go, oh, I just I missed it, and they'll give up the next shot. Well. Good players generally, if they they'll just keep taking that shot. So yeah, she was yeah definitely a great player and a good person and yeah very confident, which was great.
0: Now we talked about X's and O's, and I, I've got a question about approach to coaching because you've got coaches who really focus on the X's and O's, and there are coaches who really focus on the interpersonal relationships with the team. And I know this is a tough question to ask, but which do you think is a better approach? And I know it's a personal thing, but.
1: Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I think, I think as a person, you've got, to, you've got to be true to who you are and not, you know, you might watch different coaches and, you know, sometimes I watch other coaches and say, oh, who are they acting like? Are they, you know, are they being themselves or are they trying to be someone else? So all of it matters. Uh, if you ask me about X's and O's and people that know me, you have to be able to play defense, so it's just something that grinds me. If you can't play defense, I can't play you, because offense most people fine with that. When you do individuals, you're doing offense, you're doing individual, you're working on your ball, and you're working on your shooting. But if you can't play defense, it's a liability. So I'm a very defensive minded person, but in terms of you still got to have those relationships, but also you have got to be professional. Sometimes they won't like what I'm saying, but. Um, I've also what's the word I mean I'm not their best friend Uh, I'm their coach so sometimes that's very lonely as a coach because you've got to kind of be fair and you've got to coach everyone across the board if you become too close with people or make it more social I think then you have problems on the floor so that's maybe a social thing too but yeah I think it's a bit of all of that and I don't think there's a, in my opinion, there's a right recipe for, I just read something on Alastair Clarkson. Uh, he'd gone to America in after 2016 or 17 and he came back with a different mindset of less analytics and more time spent one-on-one with his players and building relationships. So I thought that was quite interesting because, you know, we do video, we introduce that here and they hadn't done video scouting before and things like that. But is that the main part? No. And I think sometimes we go to all these analytics and the bottom line is, just put the ball in the hole or just stay in front of your player or just rebound the ball. Um, we kind of overthink things or overanalyse it where it's just, I got a lot of comments from the people watching the Malaysian girls team saying, never seen them play so hard. Now, for me as a coach, as long as you play hard, then I'm happy. So it was good that they, you know, they played hard and they they got good reward out of that.
0: I want to step back a little bit into some of your prior coaching experience. You know. With the Sapphires in 22, it was gold. uh, Fifth in Hungary as well. How do you deal with those sort of wide varying performances
1: as a coach? Yeah, it was interesting um, because we're coming off COVID and uh, we were supposed to play in 2020. So that whole group um, missed a whole cycle. So coming into last year... It was the first time ever we were away for 31 days with 15 and 16-year-olds and played back-to-back. Normally you'd go under-16 Asian Championships, then a year later you go to Worlds. So we went to under-16s, then went to a short tournament in Spain and then went straight on to Worlds. So you, you're not changing any lineup. So it was the first time that you'd, we'd gone to back-to-back tournaments because of the COVID had obviously cancelled the year before. When you play the Asian countries, they are small and quick. So uh, that was a different style of play against the Koreans and Japanese with who we won by a point. And then, you know, we had Isla Jaffermans who was our centre and she did a great job and she had so many bruises and scratch marks of people hanging off her throughout the tournament but she's such a composed player. So having her as a big was great for us. But then we went to Worlds like a week later Well, they're all big we, I started to um, scout France and I went, oh, I don't think I can show the girls this. And my assistant coaches are going, what? And I said, that girl just dunked in, in warm-ups. Like this is it on the 17th. Um, so then we became, they were all kind of like for like. They were bigger than us, you know. So then it became, now worlds, it was tough. Um, so fifth was actually, I thought we did really well with the group we had because they hadn't played They'd really had two years of not playing before any of this um, because of COVID. And I think New South Wales and Victoria were probably the um, hardest lockdown yep. states. And we had a number of players from there. And then trying to just keep everybody uh, normal and away from their families for 31 days. It was the longest road trip ever. Um, and I think we did a really good job with that group.
2: Yeah. And I think, I imagine as coaches and selectors, that would have been difficult to say, okay, we've got to pick a squad that's going to be competitive at both tournaments. Um, you can't really account for injuries, combinations, or recovery time of people, or things like that. Because I know often as well you can have the opportunity to pick one team for like an Asia Cup. I mean the Opals do the same thing. Pick one squad for Asia Cup, but come World Cup time there's going to be changes made for whatever reason but particularly in juniors you know the development of different players and a lot of other factors change so quickly from say an Asia cup to a world cup then your team could be different I mean even the recent under 19s teams there were some COE athletes that were not picked for the final squad which Mm -hmm. was probably a surprise to lots of people but then having to pick a squad, a roster, to do two tournaments, that would have been really tough. Did you have to implement, you know, were there any other extra planning or thought process going into that?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's a great point because it is two different teams. You would normally pick a year apart for Asia and for Worlds. And then, you you know, like in your selection, you kind of always look at that 11 and 12 player as, where would they fit if you needed them? Because generally you just don't play 12 players and everybody gets on and all the rest of it. So we did take a particularly tall player with us who might not normally have been picked for the Asia Cup, but you would have included her for Worlds in case you needed that height. So it was definitely a different way of thinking. Yeah, so the 11 and 12 became... Would they normally go in Asia Cup, or would you bring them to Worlds and you went, We need that versatility. If we needed that versatility, you had to you had to take them with him because um, there was no changing once you got there. We that was the group you were with, so it wasn't like after one tournament you could send some home and send some back. We weren't going to do that, or what? That wasn't the process. So yeah, definitely is, uh, and especially I think at under seventeen level because they also hadn't played state champs because they'd missed the under sixteens. So you're kind of dealing with. A little bit of the unknown with some of them and then obviously if they're at the COE, you know, they're known a lot more and there was uh, one of the girls, she wasn't even in the squad and I went to the Ballarat um, under-18s and I said, oh, I'd like her in the the camp and they're like, oh, she hasn't kind of been on the radar and I went, I like her, I think she's good and we popped her in the camp and um, she was probably one of our best trainers at the camp and then she went on and made the team. And that was years ago. It was kind of similar Monique Conti. We saw her at Nationals and she was coming off the bench for Big Metro. I'm like, oh, we like her. We brought her to camp. She ended up being World All-Star 5 in 2016. So, yeah, about that, you know, talent ID and just having different people's views on it and having a look, I think it's important. But it was a different, it was certainly different last year to only have a couple of camps and then, okay, now we've got to pick a group to go away for two major tournaments
0: it's an interesting point you just brought up about the talent ID because you went out of your way to go and look in other areas and you identified people that you you felt were they've got the potential do you think that sometimes there are players out there that just get missed because they don't follow that traditional pathway and you know getting an opportunity to go and look at other tournaments Gives you an opportunity to ID people that may not be on the radar?
1: Yeah, I think definitely. um, I mean, I'm, what's the word? Uh, I've always just, if I see something and and like it, or, and I think it's important that we have that array of people having that eye for the talent ID, because it's, as you said, it's, some people just go, no, it's this one, and we'll, you know, and they're here and here, and I'll go, but I like that one. Uh, and I've kind of always done it, even when I did state teams back in the late '90s and 2000s. I kind of, uh, with my coaching director, I'm like, "No, I want, I want her in." I'm like, well, why? Well, I'm telling you, I like what I see, and I like. And some of those people made the team, and I think, uh, you know, you don't make a lot of friends either. Sometimes when you say, "Oh, you know, I, I want this person in," or I see it a little bit differently, but I think it's important that. If you can, and, and to bring them to a camp, you've got enough, it's good. I think then you can expose them and then they can run uh, with what they've got and they're exposed and we get to see them. And I think it, you know, for me, I've always done that. I think sometimes, yeah. You know, I think we do miss miss players definitely and you hope that they keep working hard to kind of get breakthrough at some point.
2: Yeah, and like, you know, you mentioned Monique Conti being a bench player for Vic Metro and now she's a dual professional athlete you know across two codes and I I imagine it would be really interesting if you see a talent like that giving them the opportunity to go to even an Aussie camp where they're under a different system they're their own responsibility they don't have to be so limited and restricted to being a bench player playing a certain way under the one particular coach's instruction they'll have a bit more freedom to showcase their talent so imagine if they didn't get that opportunity and you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to see it
1: yeah I think um yeah like Monique you know it was like April for the 18s and we brought her in for a May camp uh we played worlds in July she came off the bench she was great and she ended up being a world all-star five from the bench like nominated from other coaches which is just outstanding and obviously showed we had a really good team but that's really unusual. And then, as you said, she's gone on to be a uh, dual, you know, WNBL, AFLW. Um, she's a great athlete, great lover. She's great. Or a kid. She's probably not a kid anymore. But, um, but I think that was one that, you know, wasn't necessarily, you know, on the radar earlier than, than that. And then she got her opportunity and she was fantastic.
0: You know, obviously, with everything that you've done, there's got to be something that you find really challenging about coaching what is it for you that you find most challenging
1: yeah uh, sometimes i think and i said to my daughter oh i think i'm going to retire soon it's just why and i'm like just to get people to work hard play hard and do their job it's you know like just overall with a lot of teams and males and females like you come to the court and like Uh, you need to work harder like should I have to be doing that I want to do the X's and O's and I want to do the drills but sometimes just uh, pushing people to run harder to play harder to take a charge just it's just I I sometimes think oh god am I getting too old I don't know Um, because that frustrates me at times and you know even like in professional in the men's or women's you either get paid a lot or you don't get paid a lot. It doesn't matter. If you work at KK Supermarket or Woolworths, I mean, you do your job. So I said, but this is a great job, sport. So to kind of get people to be up for training is tiring <laughs> if you have to,
2: I think that's fair enough. Like especially when you're coaching professional teams, it should already be like an unspoken rule that when you come to training and games, you're always putting in 100% effort. It shouldn't have to be something that, like it's a standard expectation when you come to any kind of training, I feel like. So I understand your frustration when you're like, do I really have to coach the effort into you again today? Mm. Mm.
1: And it's kind of across. like I did NBL1 last year with the Centrals men and not and so, but just even NBL1, like my daughter trains and plays, I said, but even for two sessions a week, don't just... People roll in like, oh, I've been at work. I don't care. I've got you for an hour and a half or two hours. Just train hard and play hard, and then I don't care what you do in between. The next time I see you, but because it kind of um, it has an effect on how the trainings go, how other people are, and yeah. So <laughs> probably got me on a bandwagon now, but um, <laughs> yeah, I just think whatever it is you're doing, then do it well and put in the effort when it's a, a team thing. And then if you want to go home and put your feet up, don't care. Like, but when you come to the session, then make
2: it good or try as hard as you can. Yeah, it's part of the commitment. When you commit to a team in a season, you got to commit 100% and, and your best 100% of the time. And I remember what the last time I played Waratah, you know, which was just before it was NBL1, and it was, you know, oh, I can't come to training because it's my auntie's birthday. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, easy, right? and, yeah. It's Tuesday. Yeah. Have it tomorrow. Yeah. Have
1: it any other day. <laughs> like, like none of those things. I just go, and? Yep. Like <laughs> go and have your cake after treat. Like, yeah, all of those things I just go, mm. no. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't like <laughs> <laughs> it. Like, I think I remember with Joe's Wright for the Sixes. someone came and asked to go to a wedding. He goes, uh, no. <laughs> Uh, if it's a funeral, I'll, I'll think about it. But no, tell them not to have the wedding on on a game day. Well, you know. Like, so it's it's cool. yeah, it's your job, and you just yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's different generations, but I don't I don't know. I don't think so. It just kind of people are a bit different. You go, no, that's not it. You commit, then you commit.
0: Do you find that level of commitment varies depending on the level of competition? So, like, you know, the further up the elite ladder you go, the less likely you are to encounter that sort of behaviour?
1: Yeah, potentially. I mean, I know, say, with NBL 1, you've got some people that have been there a long time or some that, you know, maybe won't get as many minutes and then others that want to make NBL or want to be WNBL. So they're coming in and they're like, come on, let's, you know, let's go, and the others are like, oh, you know, yawning and, like, when's this over? So I think... It does, and people's uh, motivators you know that we're not all the same of how we're motivated to do things so yeah it definitely can be an issue and I, I try to have it is we're all here for the one thing we're all playing for x club and our jobs to do our best for this club whether you're going to get minutes or not get minutes no one's you know I never guarantee anybody minutes or what I'll do but I'll guarantee if you work hard then I'll do my best to know, play you and get you on. And and the same with the ones that maybe have WNBL or MBO aspirations, they got to kind of cool it a little bit too because sometimes they're coming in like, you guys need to do this for me, and I'm like, no, no, hang on, let's just drill it back a bit. We're all here to play this game and do this, and if you're going to be good enough and you do enough work, your name will be put forward and then someone else can make the decision on that.
0: If you're going to give an aspiring coach one piece of wisdom, what would it be
1: i'd say just be confident in yourself and confident in your own ability because if i probably take my journey there'd be a lot of people go or oh, how did you get that or why did you do that or how did you get that but i mostly sought the opportunities i asked about them i put myself forward things that i guess and i don't want to kind of go male or female but this I don't think there's enough female coaches out there I'd love to see a whole lot more and I still coached before I had a baby after I had a baby and I'm not saying any of that's easy but but confidence in your own ability and just to learn I I, I tried to do as many courses as I could and I love learning off other people and listening to other people things that you might do you might not do and nobody knows everything about the game and I think sharing the game some people like to hold it back and it's like well there's no secrets like if, if that offense works for you, great. But I mean, so yeah, so probably just confidence in your own ability and and go after opportunities if they're there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I find it really interesting because I listen to a lot of coaches speak, and I try and tie it back to things that I see on a day to day basis in business as well. And there's so much alignment mm. in the approaches. I find it really interesting, and I really find it interesting in The number of people that don't take those lessons and apply them to areas outside what they believe is their area of expertise, Mm -hmm. how do you find, you know, applying what you've learned from coaching to other things?
1: Yeah, I think I just have the whole way through. Like, as I said, I was in policing and then I was at the police academy as a trainer and I did leadership courses for police officers um, at the leadership faculty um, then I was, you know, coaching at night. It, I feel, like you said, it's all part of life and a part of you kind know, of what you do and you can apply all those things. I know at the academy it depended, well, throughout my police career, it depended on my boss, what they thought of my basketball. So I had a lot of either issues with time off and things like that if they go, oh, she's at basketball again, or if I had someone that went, that's great, the skills she's getting from there we can bring back to the police force and so forth so um, I just think overall the skills you have in life can be in the basketball setting and what you can kind of learn from the basketball setting and teamwork can go into your business setting as well because we know we all have teams in work or other things so I think you can just apply it all and it's not just in this box and that box it's just part of I guess for me it's just part of who I am. If, I bump into anyone in the street, it's either from basketball or policing, you know. You know, my daughter goes, oh, you're too old now, because I, t- I kind of look at the person and go, oh, I so- how do I know you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is another one which I, I've kind of been in the back of my head. You've coached big city teams and you've also coached regional teams. What's the difference that you've seen in the fan engagement between big city and regional
1: yeah it's a good question I think when you look at regional you know it's generally people that know everybody a lot more and maybe more invested in the team but also they want to look for their own like where are our country play where are our players there but if you're in a national league program because I'm hearing a little bit of this I think you know WA or Cairns or Bendigo they're going where are our players but If you're in a national competition and you want to win, sometimes those players aren't always good enough to be in there. If they are, yes, but they, oh, we want them as DPs and we want them. So sometimes the pressure on that, if you're in a bigger city team, you know, so like Adelaide 36ers, you know, at this point we haven't had a whole lot of South Australian players in that team, but they're playing elsewhere, but people kind of don't see it as much because it's a bigger, you know, bigger towns and bigger places. So I think sometimes the country teams, they also suffer a little bit, I think, from, you know, the capacity of money, just following it a little bit for free agency. And I saw DJ Hogue, I think, has gone from Cairns to Sydney, Kings. Part of me feels a bit sorry, but I don't know, you know, for Cairns is was it just a much bigger budget and, you know, that he left there because he was a great pickup for them. So, and, and. kind of those stories are all around the place a little bit. But I think sometimes it's harder for those regional teams to actually keep the big dog for as long because other teams, perhaps bigger city teams and maybe with more money, they're a bit more inviting.
2: Yeah, and then those regional teams sometimes are seen as a bit of a stepping stone for a younger athlete's career. Um, Me growing up and living on the Central Coast, we have the Central Coast Mariners in the A-League. I don't follow what my mum does. She tells me all the bits and I hear, you know, listen from time to time. But essentially one of her biggest gripes is, uh, well, points, is that uh, the Mariners are really good at finding local talent and fostering that local talent, but then all of a sudden they have a breakout season, similar in the way of your DJ Hogg, your Keanu Pinder's been on the rise the last couple of years, and then they get cherry-picked by the bigger clubs, you know, instead of sticking around to these regional teams with a smaller budget but perhaps a little bit more care into their looking after their players and the development and then see you later.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely has happened. You probably could, you know, off your top of your head, you could probably pick out 15 to 20 that it's that's happened and it's hard because then those clubs and teams have to then find the next person that, you're worried the next year, the next big dog's going to come in and ta- and sometimes play you know, I know um, when I was at Bendigo, a lot of players were going, "Oh, I want, I want a roster spot." I'm like, "Well, no, I might be able, to, I might be able, to, you know, offer you the DP spot." Oh no, I'm looking for a roster spot. Well, they can get picked up anywhere else on a roster spot. Um, I don't know why they kind of thought potentially, well, I'll be a roster spot here and I'll get time and then I'll go somewhere else. Well, no, but you know, they probably gave it a shake, but. You know, and you looked and you followed them and you're like, well, they actually didn't get picked up anywhere else either. So then maybe they should have taken the, the opportunity, perhaps the training opportunity first.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The, the one team that seems to kind of go against the, against the tide in that, in that respect is Townsville. They tend to keep a lot of players up there.
1: They're a big city, actually. When you look at it, because I've often thought of that when I was with Bendigo and Townsville, They've got a massive program up there. They've got a lot of staff too, and it's actually really quite a big town because I think was it the Cowboys used to um, go out of there. They used to have the Townsville Crocs for NBL, so they used to have NBL, NRL, and WNBL out of the one place. Now say if say Bendigo for example, they wouldn't be enough to go NBL, WNBL plus an NRL. Whereas Townsville are pretty good, and I think they've done well with their marketing, what they've done, but it's actually a pretty big place that now doesn't have the, I think it's NRL, is that right, the Cowboys? And it doesn't yeah. have the NBL playing out of there where it used to have both of those.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you and getting some insights into you know, Asian basketball, coaching, and all the other things we've managed to talk about. What's next for you in Malaysia?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Well, my um, current contract's till the end of August, um, so they're now looking at an under twenty-five competition and perhaps I think Asia Cup in the Division B in August. Uh, so we're getting kind of a bit of a ceremony for Sea Games, and then we'll look at what more some more planning next week. Post there I think we just got to kind of look at overall how the program runs because generally the next Sea Games is May two thousand twenty-five. So quite a long way away when there's not a lot of competition in between so yeah I'm not sure how to look after August so I could be anywhere I could be back at home I could be here I don't know yet
0: (laughs) okay well look good luck with however it turns out Tracy thanks so much for your time and we'll really be looking out to see how things develop for you
1: No, thanks very much. It was great meeting you guys. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me on and it's great having your support. I think once I worked out Instagram and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) there's some people following us.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.